I'm interested in is like, here's a study that shows that subliminal messages can can change your endurance, which right. again shows that like, and this is smiling faces versus frowning faces flashed right. for 16 milliseconds at a time. They can change your endurance, which shows that it obviously was not your, you know, lactic acid levels that were controlling your your endurance. It's 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 in your head, or or you know, motivational self talk, or. Hey friends, Jeffrey Wu here, and welcome to another episode of the HVMN Podcast. This week, we're examining a number of hot topics in human performance with Alex Hutchinson. You might have seen his column, Sweat Science, in Outside Magazine. In his recent book, Endure, Alex explores the limits of what humans are capable of, revealing paradigm-altering research that suggests that the physical barriers that we encounter are set by our brain as much as it being set by our bodies. Since there is still so much to be understood about the mind, viewing humanity's limits through this unique lens means that the horizons of performance could be much more elastic than we once thought. Alex and I discussed the differing philosophies of the brain on physical performance through the work of both Professor Tim Noakes and Professor Samuel Marcora's research. We also touch upon how Alex's thinking about sports nutrition has evolved through the years, and lastly, how he retains his journalistic integrity as he approaches new theories, research, and products in sport. If you find this episode valuable, please consider sharing it. We really appreciate it. Tell a friend, post on Twitter, etc. Word of mouth really helps us out here, and you can tag us and find us on all social networks at HVMN. You can also reach out directly to me and my producer, Zill, at podcast at hvmn.com. Without further ado, let's get started. Alex, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate the, uh, the invitation. So you have a very interesting background. So you're a trained physicist with a PhD. You are a serious runner. And now you write probably one of the foremost sports science periodicals and also just recently published a best-selling book on sports science. What goes on on, on a day-to-day basis? Like, you know, that's a very wide gamut of experiences and training frameworks. You know, what's your day-to-day look like these days? My days are a little bit in flux because, you know, a day right now, six months after my book came out, is different from a day a year ago when I was trying to write my book or a day... And hopefully will be different than a day six months from now when I'm, you know, living on a tropical island and, uh, you know, sleeping 20 hours a day, but maybe not. Uh, (laughs) The framework of my day is that I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old kid right now. So everything moves to the rhythm of two-year-old and four-year-old kids. I get up and get my kids breakfast and stuff. And I usually run in the morning. Uh, Not always. Uh, Today, I went for a bike ride with a friend. I'm a morning exercise kind of guy. It starts my day off, right? Do you do that fasted? Do you do a workout uh, it, fasted, unfasted, or is it just sort of ad hoc? It, it all depends on timing and logistics for me. I probably prefer to do it fasted. Like I find that sort of feels the best if I can just get up and clear the system out and get, get go out for a workout, depending on how things are going. Like if my wife is going for a run, so I'm watching the kids and then we have to wait for a caregiver to arrive and then I'm not running till you know, 8.30 or 9, then I'll usually, I prefer to eat a little bit of something before that. I'm pretty lucky in that I have dietary flexibility. I, I wouldn't do this now, but in my younger days, I was sort of famous for sometimes if going to an afternoon workout and just stopping and getting a burger on the way if I was feeling a little hungry and then going straight into a hard workout. So I don't have problems with eating and running, but I prefer to do it fasted. And I, you know, just up from a scientific perspective, 
I don't get too hung up about this stuff because I'm not like super competitive these days, but I think there's probably some sort of maybe edge or advantage to doing the workout fasted, but it's dictated by logistics for me, I would say, is my morning eating versus exercising rituals. Yeah. And then I guess in terms of the ideas that come across the table, and I think you talk about this in Endear a bit, but the, really the, the field of sports science, I would say, is really blossoming the last five, 10 years. And I think, um, you know, you, you discussed Roger Bannister, and I think that generation of athlete was, I consider like a gentleman scholar athlete, right? These were not professionals. There wasn't a business around athleticism. And then probably in the 70s and 80s when sport became a big business, a lot more funding, a lot more sponsorship dollars, real money on the line, and sort of the academics and the funding for science really started to come. And I think within the last five, 10 years, you have wearables, quantified self-technologies, a lot more biomarkers that are being tracked. How do you see the evolution there? Obviously, you, you write a column about the latest in the forefront there. Where do you source the ideas? What catches okay. your interest these days? Yeah, lots of questions there. Let me say something about the evolution first, which is I share your perspective that I think a lot has changed in the last decade or so. It's hard for me to know for sure because the degree to which I'm paying attention has changed also. So it's like 10 years ago, I was like, there's no sports science. Now it's like, it's nothing but sports science. Well, that's because I live in the sports science world now. And so right. I'm looking for it and it's looking for me too, to the extent that I get you know press releases and stuff. To some degree, there's just a change in my own perspective. So my professional perspective was that I started out as a sort of cub journalist and I graduated from journalism school in 2005 and worked for a newspaper doing general assignment, then started freelancing in 2006 and was looking for ways of getting into areas that were interesting to me. And at that time, even though I had been a serious runner for 15 years and had a scientific interest, and even though I'd actually been a subject in some running studies as an undergrad because some of my teammates were in exercise physiology, I still had very little concept of sports science. I didn't think there was much out there. And I started noticing some columns in the New York Times, for, initially by Gina Collada, who wrote a column called Personal Best, and then subsequently by Gretchen Reynolds. Hmm. But Gina Collada like, wrote some articles on the lactic acid myth, like talking to people like George Brooks, who is you know, a very well-respected scientist, about this idea that we all think that lactic acid is evil, but in fact, its role is poorly understood. It's partially a fuel. It doesn't burn your muscles up from the inside or anything. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I wish I'd thought about that or known about that as a runner. And then the other thing I noticed about those columns is like, wow, they're on the, like, the top 10 most emailed list of the New York Times hmm. consistently. It's like people are interested in this stuff. So that's sort of piqued my interest and I started to look into it. The impression I had at that time, so when I was starting to pitch my first newspaper column on sports science in 2008, I think 2007, 2008, my pitch was, I've just discovered there's like you know, 5,000 people a year show up to the American College of Sports Medicine conference. There's a ton of researchers doing this stuff. And Serious athletes know almost nothing about the results of that research, much less the casual exercisers. So there's a real information gap, and I would like to try and bridge that gap. And that's what I started doing about 10 years ago. And there were a few other players in the field. There were people like Ambie Burfoot at Runner's World. And again, at the Times, there was Gretchen Reynolds and Gina Collada. There are other people too. But now I look around and it's like, wow, it's kind of crowded in here. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a whole world of people trying to explain sports science. And I think for the most part, that's good. I mean, I'd love to have a monopoly on, on good ideas, but I think there's a lot more literacy and awareness that's accompanied by 
So there's the academic research translating that. There's also the commercial research. And there's always been, you know, the Gatorade Sports Science Institute has been around since the 80s. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can talk if you want. They're, like they're, That's obviously Gatorade has become very controversial for its role in sort of influencing sports science. But this idea of corporate research that can tell us interesting things about sports science and also sell products, which, uh, you know, it, it is a double-edged sword, for instance. But I think that the whole pace of that even though it's existed again since, let's say, the 80s, Gatorade started to bend upwards. Right now, we're in an era where people have finally kind of recognized that there's some real stuff there. And also, I think there's a greater sophistication in understanding that there's a lot of crap out there. Yeah, we want to have information and we want to sort of understand where this information is coming from. And we want to, you know, understand what the weaknesses and pros and cons are. So, yeah, that's in a nutshell, I would say, yes, I agree. Things in the last 10 years have really become much more interesting in the sports science area. Tears that get into your background, I mean, just reading a little bit of your bio, and you're a physicist. You spent a few years, I guess, doing some research for the NSA. How did you go from physicist, I guess, doing some interesting work at the NSA to a journalist? What was that transition? As you can probably guess, everyone from like my, my aunts and uncles to now people who've read the book, that people are curious about that and, and they've asked the question. And the more you answer a question, the harder it is to remember what you were really thinking. Like the, <laughs> you start to answer the question and the question, the answer becomes what you remember. Right. And so it's, it's actually really hard for me to get back into my head and remember like, how much did I really know about journalism when I left my postdoc to go to journalism school? And you know, part, sometimes I'm like, I knew nothing about it. I, I had no interest. It was just totally like uh, jumping off a cliff. Other times I'm like, oh, but wait, I did write an article for Physics World once. So I must have been interested in the idea of of writing uh, before that. So, but, you know, really what it came down to is physics was never really my passion. I was kind of trying to figure out, even from the time I was in high school, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that sort of idea was do something that's intellectually challenging and you'll never regret that. You'll you'll train your mind to think, you'll do hard things and you'll keep more doors open. It's like if you go and study sociology, no offense to any sociologists out there, but you're not going to then say, oh, actually I changed my mind. I'm going to do quantum physics. Whereas if you do quantum physics, you can say, actually, I want to be a journalist. So at each stage, both picking my undergrad degree, then deciding to go on with a PhD. And then after the PhD, I actually took a year off, which was probably the best decision of my life in some senses. I was very lucky to be in a position where I could do that. My parents were like, okay, yeah, you can come and live at home and you can train hard and you know tutor some kids to make some money or whatever. But I took a year trying to figure out what the heck I wanted to do with my life. And after a year, I didn't, hadn't figured anything out. And so I took the postdoc with the NSA but the thinking I had done, I, I did. I read a hell of a lot of good books during that year, but I also did a lot of thinking. And the thinking I had done, it took a while to kind of germinate. But it, after a year or two of the postdoc, I was like, yeah, those things I was thinking about, about how I want to spend my life, I think that's correct. And I think I'm going to leave physics and go to journalism school. I'm going to go to journalism school because I think if I'm going to do this, I need to dive in head first. I, it's, not, it's going to be something that's hard to do sort of, you know, nights and weekends or whatever, like either either I'm doing it or I'm not. And it's going to give me an opportunity to kind of mold my own future and decide what to pursue 
avenues of intellectual curiosity. Uh, to succeed in physics, if you're really, really good, you can follow whatever interests in that field occur to you. If you're only sort of good, which is probably where I would classify myself, you kind of have to pick a specialty and it's like, okay, the next 40 years, you're going to try and master this <laughs> narrow specialization. Yeah. So I wasn't good enough to be able to kind of hew my own path in physics. And I thought in journalism, there'd be a little more freedom to be able to follow different areas, which is kind of what I've ended up doing, I'd say. That's a cool transition. I mean, it's no joke to do a PhD in physics. So credit to you to to have the intellectual capacity to you know master a very difficult field. Um, something that I was interested in playing around with. I, I decided to, I was doing my undergrad studying between computer science and physics. So physics is no joke. Well, if you're in California, computer science is the way to go for sure. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean at Stanford it was like very much like okay. At some point, I want to do some computer science. Uh, physics seems like I, I mean it's a very intellectually interesting framework to view the world as you know, but seem less applicable to to value creation. It's yeah. cool. And let me just say for the record yeah. here, for any physicists who are feeling slighted out there, I mean, I have huge respect for people who have gone on in physics and do it. In some ways, I, I think, I wonder, I hope I maybe will go back to physics at some point in a journalistic capacity and try and tell some of those stories because I think it's a real challenge and that there's really cool stuff going on at the borders of physics and it's really hard to explain. Maybe that's a role I can play to try and translate some of what's going on, understanding really the fundamentals of the universe. But that's hard stuff. And it's hard to understand it. Like even after a decade away, I can barely understand like my own PhD thesis. But then to try and explain it is something else. I don't know if I have what it takes to do that. But it's like if you can share with other people what's going on at the boundaries of physics, there's some really fascinating stories there. They're yeah. just not very accessible. Yeah, I mean, explain quantum gravity or like why that's important. It's like, mm, that's <laughs> that'll be its own podcast episode. Yeah, I thought it was interesting with the endure that you really followed two researchers, really, right? It's a story of Professor Tim Noakes and Professor Samuel Markura. And actually, I've spoken to both gentlemen. I believe you probably know them much better than I do. But it's interesting to sort of follow them on Twitter and follow their research, <laughs> and then also just see them as characters in the story. Where do we want to dive into this? I mean, from a Twitter perspective, they like very much hate each other. I mean, it's it's it's, it's like a almost silly, if not surprising, antagonist relationship. But from their research and their research interests, I mean, I think as you mentioned in the book, a lot of overlap, a lot of interesting. I would say like articulation of the same core concepts. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about. The, the research threads and ideas going on between, I guess, the physical, you know, the musculature of performance and like the mental, the psycho, the psychology of, of performance. So first of all, for anyone who doesn't follow these two scientists or any number of a group of scientists on Twitter, it's when you say it's like interesting and put that in quotes, it's crazy. It's ridiculous what goes on on Twitter. And, and you know, in another era, we would never have been privy to these sorts of uh, Academic rivalries, right? I guess is one yeah, way to put it. Th that become personal animosities. Right. And to an extent, those types of things have always been present. It's just usually you don't get to stand on the sidelines and say, wow, that's some really juvenile name calling. Like, what is going on? So as you said, I've spoken to both these guys. Uh, you know, I haven't had as much opportunity to spend time with Noakes, but both Samuel Mercora and Tim Noakes have been, you know, nothing but gracious to me when I've asked them questions, when I've visited their labs and asked them to review things, check things for accuracy. They, they've been absolutely great. And they both, I think, make amazing contributions to the research. And I would group them both together. You mentioned this sort of split between 
you know, the physical and mental side of endurance. And of course, there, there's no split. It's all one thing. But I think both Noakes and Mercora have done a lot to bring attention to the role that mental processes play in dictating physical endurance. And the Noakes, I would say, kind of created that field, although people who were in the field before him would disagree. They'd say, no, no, we were thinking about this all the time. But Noakes is the guy who in the 90s said, no, 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 wait, we really have to think about the brain not as an add-on or a kind of separate thing, but it's like it's fundamental to understanding when do I quit or how fast can I go? That depends on what's going on in my brain and let's try and understand what's going on. So both those guys are great. And the fact that they've ended up with a this sort of acrimonious relationship on Twitter is challenging. And to some degree, having written this book, I've ended up a little bit in the crossfire of not so much... <laughs> between those guys, but between their followers to some degree. And then there's other players in the field too. But the fact that the book ended up following these two guys, and I think that's a correct synopsis of the book, that it's kind of at the core of the book is understanding the arguments they've made about endurance. I think both of those guys in in one way or another are going to be remembered for a long time for their contributions. And to what degree, who deserves more credit than whoever else? I don't know. And I don't want to have that role of judging. And (laughs) I'm not qualified to. But for now, all I can say is I think both of them are making really important intellectual contributions. And uh, yeah, it was something that caught my attention enough that I was like, yeah, hey, let's spend some years and and try and understand what they're doing and write a book about it. Yeah. To uh, maybe enlighten the audience who might not be as familiar or haven't read Endure, which people should definitely read. I think it's probably you know, the best sports science. I don't really read sports science books, so this is like a, a, a very good book. So the you top should read one it. of one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's worth articulating a little bit about like the gov- central governor theory that Noakes put out and uh, Marker's sort of psycho, psychobiological, psychobiological yeah. effect of endurance. Let, let, let me give the cartoon version of each, yeah. which is basically the, the central governor that the Noakes started talking about in, in the 90s was to say, you know what, like when someone finishes a race, they're never at the point where, or rarely, you know, for the most part, they're, they're not at the point where their body has stopped working. They're, you're the, you know, you finish the Olympic marathon and you go and get a flag and you jog around the track. Your legs still work, your heart still works, everything's still working. Why is that? If you're in second place in the Olympic marathon, why aren't you running to the point where you just collapse die. to the track yeah. or die? Yeah. And so what he proposed is there's some sort of governor and a governor is a word that you think of in terms of like engines, that you could have a governor that prevents the engine from going beyond a certain speed so it doesn't rattle itself to bits. So there's a central governor, uh, in other words, a safety mechanism in the brain or controlled by the brain or somehow related to the brain that prevents you from going right to your physical limits. So the point at which you say, I cannot go any farther is not the point at which your muscles can't go any farther, but it's the point at which your brain thinks you'd better not go any farther or you're going to be in deep trouble and and do some damage. So you have a sort of self-protective mechanism. And whether that central governor is set to kick in at 99% of your capacity or at 40% of your capacity, nobody knows. And there's probably differences between people. But the fundamental idea is that you're not generally hitting physical limitations. You're being regulated by your brain, which in a simplistic way, you can say, well, that means the limits are negotiable. That means independent of what's going on in your muscles, there's ways of maybe manipulating your brain to change the settings of the central governor. When I first read Samuel Marcora's work, I kind of thought he's just kind of giving another name to the central governor theory. And that's certainly what Noakes Noakes would argue argue, and and, and others who in in the sort of Noakes camp. But Marcora ultimately argues that he says, if, if you say that there's a central governor, 
really you're not actually answering any questions. You're falling into what's known in philosophy as the homunculus fallacy, that we can explain what's going on in your brain by positing that there's a little man inside your head that's making those decisions for you. Uh, and, and, and this man, in, in this case, is the central, you basically, he's the central governor who decides when to pull, call it quits. And so Marcora kind of rejects the idea that there's this unconscious uh, circuit breaker that's kicking in to reduce your muscle recruitment when you're close to your limits. He says it's all conscious. Basically, all that matters is when you exercise, you have a perception of effort. It feels hard to a certain degree. And you'll keep going as long as it doesn't feel harder than you're willing to sustain. So if you're out for a jog in gym class, you may be only willing to tolerate four out of 10, and you're going to slow down when it starts to feel like five out of 10. If you're a competitive athlete, if you're at the Olympics, you're willing to tolerate 10 out of 10. And the reason you slow down is not that your muscles are incapable of going, but that your sense of effort is 10 out of 10. You're like, this is as hard as I can go. And so you decide to slow down. You know, Matt Fitzgerald wrote a book called, you know, How Bad Do You Want It? About Marcora's ideas. And because and what it sort of on the surface implies is this, it's just, it's all a question of how bad you want it. And as long as you're willing to push harder, you can always go harder. And of course, that's not really what it means because ultimately your sense of effort is dictated by your body. And no matter how badly I want to fly to the moon or whatever, or run at 100 miles an hour, right. my sense of effort is going to reach maximum long before I get to that point. It's not like it circumvents the physical limits of the body, right. it's, it, it, which is the sort of easy misunderstanding that you can just always you know, believe a little harder. It just means that the actual limits, the actual at the knife edge, what's what's making the decisions is fundamentally in your based on what's going on in your brain and not some sort of like oh well the muscle fibers just reached their absolute limit right it reminds me of the speed of light on when as you approach the speed of light as a mass mass goes towards like infinity right so it gets harder and harder to go even faster and faster so it's like kind of this interesting physics analogy towards the psychobiological effect maybe <laughs> as, as one yeah, interpretation that, of it that, that's like kind of like the natural analogy that i think about my interpretation of like how I kind of read it. I think that very similar to, you know, how you portray in the book, I think Noakes was a predecessor in terms of proposing the notion of the brain having a very important, if not central role in terms of endurance. But I really do like Marcura's articulation. I think it's a very elegant articulation of the, the role of the brain. And I think the results that you guys showed or you wrote about where if you actually train the brain to be more resilient, that actually reflects in better endurance performance, which I thought was a very, very interesting, exciting result. I think I generally tend to agree with that idea that, you know, Noakes was really transformational and Marcora has maybe taken it to the next step. Now, where I get flack in some cases is from some of Noakes' colleagues or former students and former colleagues who say, well, we already thought of all that. We knew all that in, in 2013. Everything Marcora says, we already knew. Right. And... At a certain point, like, you know, not to get into the, the weeds here, but it's just like, okay, m maybe, but I didn't see that in the literature anywhere. And moreover, as much as the theory is important, Marcora has proven to be a really elegant experimentalist. So I pay more attention to his theories because he's repeatedly publishing studies that are just jaw-dropping that force you to reevaluate your assumptions. And so when he does those experiments, and then when he explains them in the context of his theory, and the other people say, well, no, we can explain that with our theory. It's like, okay, yeah, that's actually not a debate that I'm interested in, like, who had this thought first. What I'm interested in is, like, here's a study that shows that subliminal messages can change your endurance, which, right. again, shows that, like, and this is smiling faces versus frowning faces flashed right. for 16 milliseconds at a time. They can change your endurance, which shows that it obviously was not your 
you know, lactic acid levels that were controlling your, your endurance. It's, it's, it's in your head or, you know, motivational self-talk or mental fatigue, showing that mental fatigue affects your performance in quite a dramatic way. So I think where Marcora has excelled is in the experimental side. And I, I'm not the man who's going to decide who, you know, trace back who had the first thought first, uh, but, I'm, but I am going to write about interesting studies as they come out. And so that's, you know, ultimately the reason I've written a lot about Marcora in the last six or seven years, he's done a lot of really interesting experiments. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. And I think that's I kind of have a similar stance, you know, I think they're both very smart, very great academics and doing a lot of great work. It's it's not my role to, you know, arbitrate like who, you know, it's like a kind of above or picker, it's irrelevant. I think it's like, we're all searching for truth. You know, they're both currently still active and searching for more truth. Let's just like figure out the truth, right? And and of course, with, with, with Noakes, actually, Noakes doesn't say much about the central governor anymore, as I'm sure you know, his main interest now is in, in you know, ketogenic diets. Low carb, and so yeah. that's, it's, it's interesting that actually, if you look at the Twitter, what, what do Marcora and Noakes argue about? They argue it, about nutrition. With, like, yeah. yeah they, 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 they're not arguing about you know, psychobiological versus versus central governor. They're arguing about uh, ketogenic diet, which is not Morcora's area of specialty. But right. you know, no strides in nuts, so that you see them clashing <laughs> all, all the time. But, yeah, which but, is actually but, a good segue. I think uh, let's talk about that. I mean, sure. obviously, uh, in our community, a lot of people are interested in intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets. For me personally, I'm not dogmatic on a particular diet. I think there's different diets are useful for different roles. It depends on your goals. If you're a super athlete, if you're an endurance athlete, if you're a bodybuilder, you probably want different macronutrients. Obviously, we have what we think is a fourth macro with the ketone ester. That's an interesting role in there. Curious, given your perspective as a sports science writer, also as an athlete, I'm sure you've played with fueling yourself. How do you think about the argument around keto being the one true nutrition path versus like it being complete horse crap? How do you synthesize the argument? I mean, I think I follow quite a bit of the, I guess, the keto Twitter. It is a nasty world out there. It is. A, people hate each other out there. Yeah, it's it's and and this is what I I'm, I've gotten pretty cautious about wading into that. I, I'm going to wade in here, so don't let me say I, I'll, I'll go ahead and say what I think. But yeah, it, I've gotten in general pretty cautious about it, just because it's kind of a it's, it's very kind of religious. Yeah, and it, it, whatever you say, like there's there's almost nothing you can say that is not going to really anger a whole bunch of people yeah. who are vocal on Twitter. And I, and I'm not singling out one side here. There's a point at which these debates, it's like there's almost very little point in writing anything because people have already made up their minds. Now, that's that's an illusion, of course, because there's the two edges of the curve where people have made up their mind. There's tons of people in the middle you don't hear from because they don't know what the answer is. Right. And they are interested in seeing what the evidence is and balancing the pros and cons. But it's definitely less rewarding to write about topics where you know you're going to get pilloried no matter what you write. If I had to cite one truth that I believe, at least there, that I currently believe about sports nutrition, it would be that there is not one truth about sports nutrition. And, you know, my thinking has evolved a little bit. Obviously, it's a point of pride or a cliche among people who think they're rational to say, hey, my thinking, you know, if the evidence changes, my thinking changes. And I try to do that. But boy, you know, let's let's be honest, it's hard. When you've staked a position on something, I know that my reading of the scientific literature. When I'm when I'm scanning through journals looking for studies to write about, of course, that's my selection of what's interesting is influenced by, hey, does this this fit with the sort of argument that I've been making in the past? So, all of which to say, it's hard to change your mind. I will say, my thinking has evolved in the last decade on things like low carb, high fat diets, 
10 years ago, I would have been pretty confident and stated without much ambiguity that no, you cannot be a good, successful endurance athlete on an extremely low carb diet. It was just, you know, it was conventional wisdom. There was also a, a pretty good body of research done through the 90s and early 2000s where researchers, particularly at the Australian Institute of Sport, but in a bunch of places in South Africa, Noakes' lab too, had been trying to experiment with fat adaptation diets. So very low carb diets to boost fat burning. And then at the last minute, you throw some carbs back in and you go and race. And they just mm-hmm. weren't finding results. So I, I felt like logic dictated that you can't be a low carb endurance athlete. And the existing evidence also dictated that. And even if you look back at like the very famous foundational texts like Stephen Finney's work in the early 80s with like five cyclists. And it's like, which to some people is like, look, this proves even back in the 80s, but the the man didn't want you to know that that, uh, low-fat diets were so amazing for cyclists. It's like, yeah, two of his cyclists got way, way worse. And he writes in the paper that it, that even though they sort of on average were equivalent, their anaerobic performance was totally shot to hell. Yeah. So it's like, if that's the best evidence you got, I think I, I was comfortable saying that low carb, high fat isn't going to cut it for endurance. Now, I, I wouldn't say that because, you know, starting with a bunch of anecdotal stuff, like stuff in the ultra running community, it was a, they were a bunch of real early adopters, people experimenting with low carb, high fat diets having success and then that sort of leading sort of grassroots to some research from, you know, Jeff Folex group looking at some of these ultra runners who on their own adopted low carb, high fat diets. And so, you know, you can say, and it's no surprise to anyone. Yeah. If you go on a low carb, high fat diet, a ketogenic diet, you're going to really dramatically ramp up your ability to, to burn fat. So that's, that's great. The question that still is like, okay, what about performance? What about perform like competition, competitive performance where you need to be able to ramp up anaerobically to go up hills or to sprint? And those questions, you know, I look at the literature and I see mixed results and the results tend to split along the, you can know what the results are going to be by looking at who the researcher is before the, the, you know, no, you know, and I'm not trying to cast aspersions on researchers, but you kind of, it's by coincidence, the results tend to back up what the the researcher has previously stated. If I had to sort of give my impression of where things stand, it's that low carb, high fat, speaking purely from a performance perspective, I I don't know anything about, or I don't know a lot about the long-term health benefits or hazards, but um, from a performance perspective, I think low carb, high fat can be just as good as a conventional diet for most people in most circumstances. So there's not like an, an obvious, you, ever, you'll be way better on diet A or diet B. It's like, yeah, they're both options. If you're trying to compete at a very, very serious level, so whether it's an elite level or just a very, very serious level for you relative to your own ability, I remain a little bit skeptical that it will be successful in Olympic distance events, let's say two and a half hours or or lower, except perhaps in a very, very modified way where you're using carbs on a regular basis during your training, not to mention your competitions. Someone just published that, an interview with, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Matei Toth, who's the Olympic 50K race walk champion, where he says he's been using low carb, high fat diet. That's one of the very first examples I've seen of an Olympic champion caliber athlete. Of course, this is in the longest 
50K event, walking event, it takes four hours. You're not allowed to sprint because it's race walking. So right. the anaerobic, you're an anaerobic threshold, right? You're, you're under the anaerobic threshold. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm not super surprised to see that it could be effective in race walking. And, and that's where some of the research has been done with race walkers. On the flip side, sorry, this is a long answer, but just, yeah, on the flip side. I mean, it's a complicated story. I mean, I yeah, think yeah, I, it, I, it, it requires nuance. This is just, the, and this is still just the cherry on top of yeah. the icing. But, but yeah, on the flip side, you, you talk about things like ultra running, say, or mountaineering. So in ultra running, let's say you're doing a 10, you know, 100 miler, then it's not just about how fast can you get fuel in. It's, are you still able to swallow fuel after eight hours of running and trying to swallow these gels? Some people are, and some of the best ultra runners in the world are like purely carb filtered, carb fueled, but a lot of people aren't. It's a real challenge. And so whatever the pros and cons from a purely like metabolic or efficiency perspective are, if you're able to reduce your reliance on external food during a prolonged event by using a low-carb, high-fat approach, so in other words, be burning more fat, that could start to be a real advantage. Or if you're in the mountains where you have to carry every bit of food with you, right. again, if you can start to rely on endogenous fat stores more, that can be a huge advantage. So I think that if I was doing a sort of broad thing, I'd say potential for LCHF you know, longer than, say, three, three hours, three, four hours, I'm open to the idea that LCHF might be good for elite marathoners, but until, you know, more than, let's say, five of the top thousand marathoners in any given year or in history start to use it, I, I, to me, that's an unproven proposition. So, yeah, I'm open to where the, where the evidence takes me. I, you know, in terms of putting my money where my mouth is or my food where my mouth is, I eat a pretty, I, I would, if I had to classify myself, I would say I'm like a, Mediterranean, Michael Pollan type diet. I'm not seriously competitive these days. I, I compete, but I'm not like I don't, I'm not concerned about one or two percent. I don't have to lose any weight for reasons that probably don't have anything to do with my diet, and more just to do with my genetics and and uh, lifestyle patterns. So I'm not faced with the situation of needing to look for other diets. I'm just this is the way I've generally always eaten, and so I'm, I don't I'm not compelled to search for for other answers. Yeah, I mean the way. I kind of approach this question is that, and I think you touch upon some of these ideas, is that there's a difference between maximal, you want to be like Olympic gold medalist, and a diet that might be more optimal for longevity, um, yeah. for metabolic problems, right? And I think that's like one segment to talk about and think about. And then I think what is getting more and more popular, at least in the professional athletes and military folks that we engage with, is that the notion of periodization or cycling where in periods of training blocks, you might want to go low carb, high fat and up your fat oxidation rates and really get metabolically flexible to be able to use fats. But then during a maximal race, so you're trying to win a, you know Olympic gold medal, you need the sugar, you need the carbohydrate for the anaerobic push. So my sense is that there's like different roles per diet and you have to like think about exactly what you're stepping up into building right like for training you're not running for a marathon you're not running 26 miles every day like for 10 weeks straight you're like blocking your training up to go have a beautiful race that last day and i think the same thing will happen for diet where like a certain training block, you want this kind of diet to maximize this kind of endpoint, whether you want to ramp up fat oxidation, reduce inflammation, increase like your anaerobic threshold. I, I think there will be a lot more work to figure out exactly how to time all these variables together. That's my thinking around it currently. Yeah. And I, I wrote a piece for Outside a couple of weeks ago that was that 
commenting on a, a big scientific review paper by by a team uh, led by Inigo Mujica. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. A guy from the basket, a very good sports scientist that was called, it was about integrated periodization. And it was yeah. making this point that, you know, for the last 40 years or whatever, people have talked about training periodization. Like, of course, you don't, you know, you're not doing big mileage. If you're a marathoner, there's times when you're building mileage, times when you're right. focusing on race speed, times when you're resting, times when you're tapering, that everything we do should be periodized in a sense. And that includes diet, like you're saying, it includes your recovery protocols, that includes your psychological skills work, if you're doing any, um, just like, there's a time for all sorts of different kinds of interventions and you can put them together to try because you know the, I think one of the sort of general principles that I think is important is this idea of diminishing returns if you do the same thing every day or every year if you do the same pattern of things every year you get used to it and your the adaptive stimulus is not a mu as much and there's this classic thing in you know, elite sports where someone will change coaches and all of a sudden they'll go on a tear for a year. Right. And it's like, oh, now they're with a really good coach. Now that this coach understands them, it's magic. It's like, no, this coach is giving them something different than what they were used to for the last five years. And I had that experience in my own running. I changed coaches a few times and each time I'd be like, oh, wow, it's these like long intervals with short rest that make all the difference. And it's like, no, it's, that's just, that was something that was missing from before. And then I'll change coaches a couple of years later. And it's like, oh yeah. Long this is a new runs. truth, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, and after a while it's like, okay, you start to get skeptical. You start to be, okay, no, no, it's not that the workout is magic. It's that the idea of pushing, pushing yourself in new ways, finding right. diverse ways to challenge yourself on a weekly or monthly basis. And also on a sort of yearly basis. And, you know, I think about this a lot because I've been a serious runner for 20 years. I need to find other ways of challenging myself if I want to stay physically healthy, stay mentally challenged, stay engaged. So that's, you know, I'm, that's why I, I took up cl climbing a few years ago. And yeah. I just recently found a pickup basketball game to play in. And it's like, I need to make sure that I'm challenging myself in different ways. And, and you know, whether those goals are for, you know, health and longevity, which, you know, basketball is fun, but I also think it's like, it's going to be really good for me to move in a different way and to use different muscles. Yeah. If my if my sole goal was to run as fast a 5K as possible, I would not be playing pickup basketball. I'd be doing more running. Right. But I'd be, like you said, there's this trade-off between which goals you're emphasizing and how much you're you're devoting towards them. Yeah. How many miles are you doing a week still? I would guess as a typical number, probably 20 miles a week as a, as a sort of basement and 20 to 30 miles is probably a good estimate. And I'm sort of resolving to bump it up a little bit this fall. You know, it's been mostly dictated just by time constraints with childcare mm. and stuff. Like I get out for a run six days a week often usually, but sometimes those runs are 20 to 30 minutes if that's all I can, can get away for. Right. And so I, I, I don't know, I just started working out with a, I hooked up with a guy who's around my level and in my area where we can start to do some hard workouts together. And I'd like to get a little, little fitter, but, uh, but not at the expense of everything else. Yeah. No, I mean, that's an interesting question. I was just chatting with one of my colleagues, Michael, who wanted to ask you and He's a serious uh, runner, right? He's the guy. Uh, who, well, yeah, he, I mean, he did a sub three marathon, which yeah, is we'll call good. That a serious runner. I mean, it's serious, but like, what was your best? What was your PR? I wasn't a marathoner. My, my, I was a fifteen hundred runner. And I ran three forty two, so right around the equivalent of about a four minute mile. Okay, I mean, one that's crazy, and then uh, you ran for, but you've done marathons. I ran like, a marathon for Runners World Story. I ran, uh, I ran two forty four. Okay. But, uh, so that that's was, very serious runner. So just to give like our audience a, a sense of yeah. how fast that, I mean, that's like a, like a sub six for 26 mm -hmm. miles or what is that? Like a six? I think it's a, a little bit over six. Um, yeah. 
I mean, I ran a 109 half marathon, which is probably a little bit of a better reflection of my my abilities. I probably when I was when I was at my fittest training for for the mile, I probably could have run a marathon in 2:30 without much trouble. Yeah, yeah. So that's very very impressive. So he wanted to ask. Um, what do you think is like a reasonable amount that a normal person should run? And I have changed my thinking around that, you know, paying out with like elite athletes and my colleagues on the team who just like love running and then, you know, talking to folks in the military who are just like dump trucks in, in terms of endurance. So like my, my thinking has evolved from like, I used to be, you know, five years ago or in college, go to the gym, run a mile, lift some weights. That's like a good workout. And now I'm thinking that everyone should be able to run at least like, at the drop of a dot should be able to at least bust out 10 miles. Cause I think it's like, it's like a fundamental, like human, like met marker of like, you can like not be a completely crappy animal at surviving. Like, I think one should be able to like move 10 miles, uh, which is quite a bit of a jump. I'm curious yeah. to hear your thoughts around what's like a sensible distance that should, people should be able to run. Okay. I'm going to stay away from judgments about what people should be able to do because, uh, very PC. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Also, because look, what's a reasonable thing for me to be able to do is maybe different from someone who's six foot six and 250 pounds of pure muscle, you know, like their skills may be different in in the same way that they would be like, if you can't bench press X amount, X pounds, then you're probably not a real human. You know, it's like, I'm I'm not built to bench press, right? Like, and you can scale it by body weight, but I think we have to recognize there, there are differences that are independent of like, what you're eating and how much you're exercising. That said, and, and age and things like that too. It's, you know, we're, right. we're, we're young folks in the prime of our lives, or at least sort of kind of cling on to the prime of my life. But yeah. in terms of what you'd like to think someone could do nonstop, I mean, I think if you can run a 5K, that's a pretty good sign. If running 5K is like you do that and then you, if 5.1K would make you drop down dead, then I would say you're probably not particularly fit. Right. Uh, that's not like an optimal level of fitness. If I were giving advice to someone about a, a regular exercise program that suggests that that would keep you fit and be a good indicator, I would be thinking like three to four runs a week of five to eight K. One of them might be an interval workout rather right. than a, and, and, and one of them maybe a 10 K run. I think it's great for young, healthy people. Like you said, to, you should be able to run 10 miles. Well, if you're fit and that's an important thing to you, I, I certainly think that having that level of fitness opens up a lot of doors in terms of the, the kinds of things you can do, the kinds of recreation you can do, the kind of life you can live. I would say that the evidence in terms of longevity and function and stuff like that, you don't have to do a ton and then this is this is like I, I've been dragged kicking and street, st- screaming to this conclusion. There's that I always figured it's pretty linear. Like if you're running 60 miles a week, you're healthier than the guy running 50 miles a week, who's healthier than the guy running 40 miles a week. And there's there's some evidence sets that suggest that's true, but there's actually some pretty good evidence that suggests really the biggest health benefits. Yeah, diminishing return. From, yeah. Yeah. From the you know from if you're doing, you know, like an hour or two of pretty hard exercise a week. So like, let's say an hour of, of running a week, you're getting most of the, the health benefits. I, I, I will admit that there's part of me that doesn't quite believe that data. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I know the difference between when I'm, you know, running, let's say 50 miles or let's say 40 miles a week. Right. And when I'm running 20 miles a week, 
and I know that I am not as function. I, like when I'm running 40 miles a week, there's something more there, and I have to feel like that's got to be good for something. But yeah. that's just my sort of self-serving gut feeling. The the evidence is like, and and I think in terms of well-being and stuff too, there's a lot of intangibles and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not sure. I would say that you know if you can't run 10 miles, you're 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 you're, <laughs> you're not subhuman a, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I mean, please do yeah. not quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think me not being a journalist, I feel like I can be more sort of around just like I think standards, and I think my opinion is just informed by the realization that like a sixth of the American economy is towards healthcare. Obesity rates are skyrocketing. Diabetes rates are skyrocketing, right? A third of Americans are diabetic, pre-diabetic. And I uh, had a, you know, a few weeks ago met the army surgeon general and she was saying that 17% of the active duty U.S. army is classified as obese. And they were having pipeline issues with their recruits coming into boot camp, just not being physically fit. Like they're playing too much video games. And, you know, this is sort of me being dogmatic. Like, you know, maybe we should just have more guidance towards people, you know, have some goals or, or to like be able to run or be able to do a certain amount of pull-ups or push-ups. And I think maybe in the previous generation, there was more opinion on that and, and and maybe that was for good reason or that was of benefit where I think maybe now where there's, you know, I guess a, a relativism towards different goals and, and, and maybe no goals that maybe is detracting to like societal health. That so is that me, is kind of like the milieu of why it's like, okay, maybe we should just have a high standard and inspire people to go towards a high standard. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me, let me, let me tweak the question a little bit. Uh, let's say if, if the question was, do you think everyone is capable of running 10 miles, like within limitations, not people with one leg or, or people who are you know, 95 years old, but for the most part, healthy adults are capable of running 10 miles yeah. or should be in the sense of they, that in theory they're capable of if they were uh, optimally healthy. Right. Then I think the answer is yes. The, the humans are capable of running 10 miles and being in the state where you are capable of 10 miles is to my mind better than not being in that state. Now there's a long standing debate in the sort of public health realm of like, which research do you emphasize? Do you emphasize the research that shows that if you go from 30 miles a week to 40 miles a week, you reduce incidence of, you know, you reduce your, your cholesterol, you reduce your blood sugar? Or do you emphasize the stuff that if says if you go from zero to five miles a week or the equivalent of that, you get these massive, massive benefits? And I mean, this is a real argument among policymakers. Where, where should we put the emphasis? Because there's so many people who can do like nothing right now. Right. That if you tell them you need to run 10 miles, they'll be like, you like, don't understand. You me. don't. Yeah. 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 You don't understand my situation. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, look at, you don't understand how bad my knees are or, or how, how, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons that people will come up with and, and they'll be discouraged. And so there's this, the, you know, maybe this sort of handholding approach of saying, well, you know what, what's really important is if you can, you know, get up and walk around the couch three times, it's going to be wonderful. And so I think what you're saying is, that approach is selling people short. And I think there's some truth to that. I think the psychology of what it will take to get people to get active is complicated. People are really s struggling with this right now. Yeah. I think I live in a world where because I'm a runner, most of my friend and most of my friends are runners. It's like, I don't know what it takes to get someone off the couch. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm that. I mean, as a journalist, sometimes I have to pretend to be that guy. But for the most part, I, that's those aren't problems I can solve. I right. I can I'm more interested in the like what happens when you go from 40 to 50 miles a week or whatever or how do you get to that stage from a societal perspective that's maybe not the most important question and the things that would motivate you 
and the things that would motivate me, like, oh, come on, what can you do? Can you find your limits? It may be true that that's a complete turnoff to the person who most needs to get get active, that they need to be approached in some other way, that what pushes your buttons and my buttons is not yeah. what pushes their buttons. Yeah. I, actually, that's how I initially got connected to Dr. Markura. There was an article about potentially using nootropics to like inspire people to work out better, right? So like yeah. that's how we actually initially connected. I think we were quoting the same, I think, piece in, in The Guardian. Yeah, I mean, I think that is frankly, probably one of the largest problems that we as a society need to figure out, right? Like the status quo for population health is not great. I think there's multiple techniques to figure out how to best motivate people to be a little bit more active. I wanted to go back to like the psychobiological or like like the self-talk or the subliminal imaging. I'm sure you've played with that. I'm sure you've read the results. You're like, wow, I want to apply this to myself. Through all your research, what results have stuck with you that you've incorporated into your actual day-to-day -day routine? I'm actually not a huge self-experimenter. Hmm. A, a little bit, like I'm interested, but I'm trying to think. There, there was a quote I read about this is a this is a, a this may be a sort of obscure illusion. There, there is an article about experimental philosophy by a guy, I can't remember his name, Anthony, Kwame Anthony Apaya, who is writing about this, the field of experimental philosophy where people do experiments to try and uh, test their philosophical assumptions. And he said, most philosophers don't like to do their experiments. They're like Catholic priests at a wedding who feel that their abstinence from the practice makes them all the more, you know, purer or better. Yeah. yeah or, or able to pronounce about its importance because they're not conflicted about it. In a sense, I have a little bit of that streak within me that it's like, I'm interested in whether this stuff works. It might be different if I was 20 and, you know, in the middle of my competitive career, but for the most part, I'm not like, here, a classic example that I've mentioned a bunch of times is beet juice. I wrote a lot of articles about beet juice when it emerged as a supplement because it was exciting because there was good evidence that it worked. And there was then a series of studies that kept trying to figure out how beet juice worked, how much you should take when it doesn't work, all these things. And each time I wrote an article, so at a certain point, it's like, probably written like 20 or 30 articles about beet juice. And up until a couple of months ago, even though I've been writing about beet juice for eight years, I had never even tasted beet juice. It just was never something. And, and, and that's despite the fact that, you know, I'd been offered samples of beet juice sort of <laughs> innumerable times, like right. people had tried to send them to me. Eventually, actually a few months ago, someone, this is a long story, I think they figured out my address from the registry of my email list or something like that and just sent me some beet juice and I got curious and I tried it. But I think that's actually right. I, I think we sent you some keto or, or, or like you never have wanted to try our keto nester, right? Like same, I, I guess the same, same principle. Yeah. So I wrote yeah. about human ketone yeah. for outside magazine and I thought about it. Like it's, it's not, it's not like this line in the sand that I never want to try anything I write right. about. Cause that's, you know, at, at a certain point, of course I'm interested in trying things and, and, right. and, and there's something to be said for first person journalism. Like when I tried Cora's brain endurance training for a marathon, the, there's a role for that. But for the most part, you have to be really good at self-experimentation to be able to judge fairly whether what you're doing is working. Or is it and just set, placebo? You just like trick yourself, right? Yeah. There's all sorts of other layers of things as, as, from a journalistic perspective, the things that go in. It's like, well, do you like it? Does it make you feel cool that you're trying this cutting edge thing? Like, does it feel neat? Do you like the people you're interacting with and therefore you don't particularly want to torpedo them by saying you really hate this product? And that's an issue for me. Like I'm sort of, I'm not a cutthroat kind of guy. I, you know, if, if people are sending me stuff and if I don't like it, I, I have trouble saying I thought this was crap. So part of my way of getting around that is to say, look, there's a billion people out there who are happy to try this stuff and to write first person stuff. And 
maybe I'll try stuff sometimes, but what I would like my role to be is to evaluate the evidence, not evaluate whether I liked it, whether it was a good fit for me, whether the transcranial direct current headphones hit, fit my scalp properly or whatever. Right. I think that becomes a bit of a distraction. I'm going to write about what does the evidence say? And so that makes it hard sometimes for me to write about new things. Like there's a new drink that just came out that Sky Cycling is, is using for, from Science and Sport. And, it's like, and, and I've been interacting with, with them by email. It's like, okay, like these are all nice explanations, but if you can't show me data that, and same with uh, that Morton, uh, a Swedish drink that, that's mm, been kind yeah. of all the rage. It's like, I understand why you say it works. I understand that a whole bunch of really good athletes like it. But what I want to know is where's the data showing that they're yeah, oxidizing fuel? Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So, you know, and, and not to blow smoke up your behind, but the, the reason I was willing to write about human ketone Whereas I haven't written much about Morton or, the, you know, beta fuel or, or these other things or 500 other things that are filling my inbox on a regular basis is because there was a good study from Oxford on, uh, with performance outcomes, not just proxy outcomes. Now, to be totally honest, I still don't know where human ketone is, is going to fit in in a sporting world. I, I, I'll be interested to see how, how things are going over the next few years. Yeah. But there is some good published data that I can write about, and that is what I was willing to write about. So all of that is a long preamble to say that, in a sense, I probably avoid trying things because I'm writing about them more than I would if I wasn't writing about them. If I wasn't writing about things, there, there's, there are more things that I would try. But in a sense, as soon as I've tried them, that inevitably will inform how I'm writing about them. So I kind of, it's kind of like not voting as a political journalist. Yeah. I kind of stay out of it. Now, having said all that, to to actually answer your question, you know, I tried Samuel Makora's computer-based brain endurance training. I found that I was fascinated that it worked, uh, at least in, in the studies that he's done, but I found it really boring. I wouldn't necessarily, <laughs> uh, really boring and challenging and time consuming. I would, yeah. And so without dramatic changes, I wouldn't make that part of my regular routine. And, and, you know, other stuff like transcranial direct current stimulation, which I did try, you know, as in a sort of departure from my usual practice. Is this what the halo neuro? Yeah. Neuro, so the okay. halo, so basically electricity to your brain changes yeah. your perception of effort. I suspect that probably works in a lab setting. I'm skeptical that the commercial version works yet. Hmm. Either way, at this point, at least, and my thinking may evolve as time goes on, as, as it often does, but I kind of don't like the optics or the ethics of it. It feels to me like, you know, putting wheels on your shoes or, or you know, a rocket booster on you. That may change. It may just be that it's new and so I'm unfamiliar with it. And, and yeah. But it's not something that I'm like, I wish I had a pair of headphones to be able to electrocute my brain on a regular yeah. basis. That's actually a good segue for an audience question here. Melissa asks, what is your view on doping? I mean, I think to give you just a sense of, you know, how I think about doping, I think it'll be a very interesting future where it'll be, you get genetic engineering, you have things like TCDS that you can't detect, like, you know, HVM and ketone, it's like not possible to detect, right? Like there's going to be more and more technologies that will change what it means to be like a fair sporting environment. I'm curious to get your thoughts do you think doping is going to just be the norm? Do you think there will be arbitrary rulings on doping? Like to me, it's like strange when 20% of cyclists have asthma, because if you have an asthma exemption, you can have the steroid that you can, you know, in the inhaler and that could be useful for having better oxygen flow in your lungs. Right. So, it's like these, all these like exemptions, it almost is like, uh, you know, it's confusing. Well, I'm curious okay. to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> this could be a nine-hour podcast. <laughs> um, so let me let me say one thing first. 
I think people sometimes jump a little too quickly on the whole asthma thing. There's very, 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 very good evidence showing that particularly endurance athletes who participate in the cold, so like cross-country skiers, but also endurance athletes who, who may be sucking in a lot of diesel, but also just endurance athletes in general, if they're especially and if they're breathing in dry air, are more likely to develop not asthma, but a, a related condition called exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. Basically, they get asthma-like attacks when they start exercising because they're breathing so much air, they're training so much, they're breathing the dry air, which dries out their airways, and it gets irritated, and they eventually develop a, a chronic condition, asthma-like condition. So the fact that 20% of cyclists have asthma isn't doesn't necessarily say anything about cheating. It says something about the fact Fair that enough. a lot of cyclists get asthma. And, you know, like Alberto Salazar, a very controversial coach, track coach, he got some negative press because some of his ex-athletes were like, and he told us how to cheat the asthma test. Before you go to the doctor, run up and down the stairs four times, then you go in and then you'll fail the test. That's not cheating the test. That's because a lot of doctors don't know what exercise-induced bronchoconstriction is. To diagnose exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, you have to exercise first. Mm. So if you're an athlete with EIB, you go to the doctor, they have you blow a test, you don't have asthma. If you run up and down the stairs four times to trigger your exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, then you test positive for having an asthma-like condition and you're, you're given the TUE. So that's just a, an actual knowledge of the realities of an elite sport. Now, I, I know some... Uh, there's a researcher at the University of British Columbia who I know quite well who's done a bunch of studies for WADA trying to f understand this question. Are things like salbutamol performance enhancers? Mm -hmm. And they've done a ton of studies on this. And there's a reason that they delisted things like salbutamol recently. It's because they can find no evidence that salbutamol is performance enhancing unless you have exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. Hmm. So the theory here and I'm sorry to go down the road on this, but I think it, or, you know, into the weeds here, but I think it kind of illustrates something to the general question that you're asking. In theory, what you want for therapeutic use exemptions for athletes being allowed to take these drugs is that it doesn't give them an edge. It only allows them to compensate for some sort of medical condition. Right. And you can make a pretty good argument that that's exactly what these inhalers do. Now, it gets more complicated because then you're like, okay, well, if you take enough of them, do they also allow you help you drop weight or something like right, that? Because right. you know you're getting some other benefits. I'm definitely not saying that there's no abuse of these things, but the, the mere fact that on the surface a lot of endurance athletes have inhalers, it isn't necessarily that they're cheating. That's actually there's evidence going back over the past few decades that enough, people, who, yeah. people who train will get it. Yeah. Now, but that's an illustration of how complicated this area is, and, and you know, in a sense, the future always looks different and radically. It's, everything's going to change and it's not going to be like things are anymore. But as much as a lot of new technologies are coming online, performance-enhancing technologies, I mean, look back from the perspective of 1960 or 1980, and you're going to see things like, you know, first of all, steroids and then hormones like EPO. We've been through a wave of things that really, really work. No, we're not talking like 1%, things that will give you 5%, yeah. you know, 10% performance boosts, they come through sports in general. And they've, they've done a lot of damage to sports, like for sure. So the question is, at what point do we wave the white flag and say, okay, look, just take whatever you want? And to me, the answer, to, so to me, the answer is never. And I'll, and I'll tell you why, because it's not, to me, sports is not, as, I'm actually not all that interested in spectator sports. I do watch stuff and I, like I love watching the Olympics and everything. I a thousand times prefer participating to watching things. I agree, and me too. So it's not just, these are not just little figures on the TV screen who are like 
who were saying, yeah, they should just be allowed to take whatever the hell they want. These are real people. And I made choices as an athlete. I was beaten by athletes who took drugs and I beat athletes who then subsequently took drugs and became really, really good and get, then got busted. A guy, there's an Irish guy I beat at the world championships one year who then got like a minute better over 10K and then got busted for EPO. I don't want those to be choices that are just accepted. So then what are the rules going to be about what's allowed and what's not? That is where it gets really hard. And even yeah. right now, the list is, let's let's be honest, it's arbitrary. You know, you yeah, can That's take, where I was going, where I think like I've talked to a lot of, you know, f- retired cyclists, like there's like a 50% hematocrit level. So everyone just like basically dopes up to that limit. So like if you're naturally high in hematocrit, like I, I wish I could, you know, th- th- like they're getting their natural, fit, you know, biological advantage taken away because everyone else is doping up to that limit. So like things like that just seem very arbitrary, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, and there's yeah. things like you know, what do you do about baking soda? It's or caffeine. Those are right. real performance enhancers, but we choose maybe not to not to because you can't ban muffins or whatever. So, right. um, to me, what in the end it comes down to, there are some things that we definitely want banned. I do not want to compete against people who are taking steroids and EPO. As a result, we have to have a banned list. Yeah, someone has to decide what's on the banned list and what's not on the banned list. Now. Anyone who thinks there's a natural line between what should be allowed and what isn't is kidding themselves. Yeah. The rule is currently made up. It's, it's, it's the three criteria. You have to fit two of them. Is If it enhances performance, if it's dangerous to the athletes, and if it violates the spirit of the sport, which is like a wild card because no one knows what right. that means. So it's a totally arbitrary. Because does sugar fit that list now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> sugar <laughs> enhances performance. Sports drinks, and you, uh, to eat, your... you eat too much sugar, you're gonna get diabetes. So hey, we should ban sugar. Exactly. So and this is not purely a function of poorly written rules. This is the nature of the world. Yeah, it's, there it's is ho- not a bright line. But to me, there has to be a line because there are some things that we definitely don't want. So my response is there's going to be a line. Some things are going to be allowed that you're like, why is that allowed? Some things are going to be banned that you're like, there's no way that should be banned. Deal with it. Just whatever. The rules are the rules. And if everyone obeys them, then we're all playing on a roughly equivalent playing field. So I have not a lot of sympathy for people who are like, well, I took this banned thing, but it shouldn't be banned. Well, it was banned. Like right. maybe it shouldn't have been changed the rules, but don't it doesn't give you a right to take yeah. it. No, I think that's like a healthy way to look at it. Like sport rules are arbitrary already, right? Like why is a basketball, Strike, why is a three right? point, three pointer, a three pointer? Like someone made yeah. it up and someone's going to make up what's illegal and what's legal for, for doping as well. And there's a philosopher who's like the sport is the essence of sport is the voluntary acceptance of arbitrary constraints. Right. That, that's all it is. That's yeah. what sport is. We make up the rules and then we play by them. Now, are things going to get complicated with as things as there's more and more undetectable things? And, and well, I mean, gene doping is no more undetectable than EPO was for a decade. Like there was there's always been things. People are always going to cheat. It's the way of the world. Yeah. Um, and hopefully you just try and make it hard enough that it doesn't totally destroy the sport. Yeah. As I enter my curmudgeonly old age, I used to sort of laugh at Roger Bannister, who, not laugh, but, you know, I, I, I didn't have a lot of time for his thought that, oh, it's too bad that everyone's training so hard, the professionalization of sports is bad. I, I still don't think that's correct, but I, I sort of have some, uh, the value I look for in sport is maybe less attuned to, like, who's getting richest or who's, you know, setting the everlasting record and more about, like, who, what about pushing your limits and, and you know, just... Uh, Getting the value of the journey rather than worrying about the destination. Yeah. You, have a very, you have a very aesthetic perspective on sport, which I think is very noble. 
which is and it's which is easy to have because yeah. I'm too old to dream about going to the Olympics or something like that. Yeah, yeah you probably would have heard different things when I was 20, and yeah. I would have said all that matters is how fast you are. So it, it, let's let's be fair. But yeah, it's it's like it's not going to be easy and it's going to be a constant sort of source of debate and challenge. And that's just inevitable. Yeah. No, a lot more to talk about, but we got to wrap up here. So hopefully we can get you on another time, but where can people find you? So you got the call outside uh, magazine column, sweat science, Twitter handle, sweat science, any other projects that you should shout out? Where do people find you? Yes. Uh, you know, Twitter is probably the, 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 as you said, it's sweat science and anything that's going on. If I have new articles or if I see things that are interesting, I, I generally post that on Twitter. That's my first port of call. So that's the best place to go. My website is alexhutchinson.net if you want to like look at my CV, CV or whatever. But And it has some older articles that I thought were good. Uh, but really, Twitter's the place to go. In terms of other projects, things going on, you know, my big project right now is figuring out what my next big project is. I, I just, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm spending some time. Project just trying to figure out what the next big thing is. Cause as you know, like after, after any big project, there's a, you kind of like, it's like, wow, that was, that was exciting. What next? I have no idea. <laughs> All right. We'll stay, be, we'll be staying tuned in to, to see what that is. Thanks so much, Alex. Um, Thanks, we'll, we'll definitely have to talk soon. Yeah. And this was, this was fun to have. It was a very uh, wide ranging and, and uh, an interesting conversation. So hopefully, hopefully there's nothing in there that will, that will get people angry at me. <laughs> All right. Cheers. <laughs>